1: And welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Kevin M. Levin about his book, Searching for Black Confederates The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2019. Mr. Levin is an award winning educator and historian. Searching for Black Confederates investigates the claims that numerous African Americans willingly fought for the Confederacy. Investigating the Confederate Army at the time of the Civil War. Levin illustrates that such claims would have surprised those actually present in the Army. Moving forward, Levin recounts how this myth came to be and its persistence to our own day. All the while, he makes sure to pay attention to the actions of African-Americans during the Civil War and after its conclusion. Mr. Levin, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks, Derek. Great to be here.
1: So I guess to begin, can you tell our listeners why you became interested in this topic and how you studied it?
0: Sure. So I've been blogging uh, since about 2005 uh, at a site called Civil War Memory. And as the title suggests, I am uh, really interested not just in the history of the Civil War and the reconstruction, and Reconstruction, but also in how Americans, you know, have sort of struggled with the memory of the Civil War of that era. And, you know, this subject is, you know, sort of the perfect case study uh, to go about investigating that. It is, it, you know, it touches on you know some of the more central questions, uh, some of the more contentious questions about the past, most specifically about the place of slavery and emancipation in our collective memory of the Civil War. So I guess as you know, a historian of, of memory, it you know it just um, it fit the bill. You know, as a high school educator, um, it. It also interested me because so many of these claims, I guess as we'll talk about further, um, you know, live on the internet, and it raises questions about you know how we both uh, search for and assess online information, both as general history enthusiasts, but also you know in terms of you know what our students are, are now are now doing or how our students uh, now study history, um, and so you know it, again in a way it just uh, you know it, it provides the perfect case study.
1: A lot of people might be familiar with the image that makes the, that makes up the cover of your book. Yeah. And so, can you explain why this image is so persistent in our in our kind of collective memory um and you know, very much online as you just said, and why it encapsulate, encapsulates your study?
0: Yeah, sure. The the image uh, in question here is the famous photograph of Andrew and Silas Chandler, which you can find now on hundreds of websites, if not thousands of websites. Uh, The photograph uh, was taken likely early in the Civil War, probably just weeks after, you know, Andrew, who was on the left, the white man, enlisted in the 44th Mississippi Infantry. Uh, Obviously, it was taken at a studio. Uh, He brought with him, you know, a Body servant, or what I call in the book a camp slave, by the name of Silas Chandler, and like a lot of officers and others from the slaveholding class, um, you know, they would have done this. They would have brought a, a body servant with them, you know, to assist them in camp. This image in particular stands out because it's really the only one that I know uh, where both um, the white and black uh, individual is. Is both uniformed—that's not uncommon—but also armed. Uh, there have been some studies done, and and you know, there's a good case to be made that in fact the weapons are studio props. Uh, but it does fuel, uh, or has fueled, uh, this particular image, um, you know, the black Confederate narrative, because I think for people who are. First of all, incapable of interpreting primary sources, or just not aware of the relevant, you know, historical context, uh, an image like that can easily lead you astray, and I think it has for. For many, again, you know, they are both uniformed, they are both armed. What more evidence do you need uh, to make the claim that at least one man fought as a a so-called Black Confederate soldier? It seems obvious. And and yet the story surrounding Silas, and we don't know much about him, but we know some, uh, is so much more interesting.
1: And you just mentioned that Silas would have been, as you call, a camp slave. And so, can you explain what exactly a camp slave or body servant is? what their role would have been during the war. And as you say in the book, there's certain things that set a camp slave apart from other enslaved and free black people who would have been, you know, forcibly put in the army.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we should start by noting, you know, that the Confederacy from the beginning to the very end of the war, you know, utilized tens of thousands of uh, of, of enslaved men, m- for the most part, as impressed slaves. In other words, the Confederacy Uh, to to ensure that it maximizes the number of white men who can shoulder a musket, you know, goes about utilizing, you know, slave labor to perform any kind of, you know, military function that will aid the Confederate cause, you know, from digging earthworks to uh, building building and repairing rail lines uh, to even working, you know, you know, within the army itself, as teamsters, as hospital attendants, um, most of these men are are nameless, right? These are just again sheer numbers, and and you know again they were, you know they were present throughout the entire war, but the camp slave occupied a very different place, um, because of course you're talking about the master slave relation in a sense being plucked from the plantation to a military setting. And, and these men functioned entirely outside of the military hierarchy. They functioned as uh, the legal extension of their masters, as they would have uh, before the war. And their function where their roles were, you know, they encompassed any number of things from morning until night, from cooking, from cleaning, uh, taking care of, uh, of you know, of packing materials, um, you know, for long marches, carrying things on long marge- marches, serving as couriers between the officer and um, and the the home front, anything the, that a master, you know, needed. Uh, in camp, on march, and even on the battlefield, uh, you know, his camp slave was hopefully there to, uh, to serve. So, in a sense, these men, and it's not just in terms of the roles they played, symbolically, I think they also occupied a very important position because I think for their masters, they were reminders of what they were fighting for, the institution of slavery, um, but it also reaffirmed many of their own paternalistic assumptions about Uh, the master-slave relationship, that they would remain loyal um, during the war, that they did um, represent a strength of the Confederacy, not a weakness, but a strength,
1: one of the things that I really appreciate about your book is that you not only focus on the you know the slaveholders who are bringing enslaved people with them, these camp slaves and why they're fighting the war and then you know former slaveholders after the war but you're also focusing on you know African Americans themselves and during the war the camp slaves themselves and so how did camp slaves use the situation of the war? to their advantage?
0: Yeah, that, that, it's a good question. And I, I should sort of admit from the outset that it was something, I, I found it very difficult to interpret. Um, because of course, you know, as historians, you know, we rely overwhelmingly, um, you know, on the testimony of, of their owners and other white observers. And we have so very little to go on from the camp slaves themselves. But I think you can um, I think we can say with some certainty that that plucking the master slave relationship you know out of something very familiar, the plantation setting to um a military setting offered an opportunity for enslaved people to uh, negotiate the boundaries between master and slave, uh mainly in terms of privileges in camp and what I found was you know camp slaves have you know a good deal of free time uh they found. Ways to earn money, working for other people, um, they they were able to 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 sort of take advantage of the uncertainty of war, um, and you know, like I said, some of them uh, do earn money. They find ways to um, you know procure you know elements of uniforms. They buy uniforms. They buy parts of uniforms. Um, you know, serving as couriers back home offers them a bit more free time uh, between camp and. And the home front and you find them pressing for more and the most obvious way in which they stretch that relationship is some of them in fact do run away they run off to the yankee army or or wherever Um, sometimes you find their master having to push back to try to um i guess recast the the setting between master and slave and they did this in some cases viciously uh through a violent very violent response and in many cases uh whipping um and and so it's, um, in, in a way, you find that the war, which, you know, the Confederates go into believing that their slaves are a great strength to the cause. By the middle of the war, you begin to see them, you know, beginning to acknowledge that perhaps, you know, they aren't so loyal, that they can't be counted on in every situation. Um, and so it was, again, it was a difficult thing to try to piece together, but but I I did my best.
1: In terms of speaking about African Americans' presence within uh, the Confederacy and both and the Union Army itself, one of the things that you talk about is that both sides would have been reluctant to actually try and recruit Black Americans. Um, in terms of talking about how this myth comes that there were so many of these people fighting willingly for the Confederacy, and you point out that the Confederacy and the Union would have been very hesitant to actually even actively recruit, much less passively accept these people.
0: Yeah, I think. Look, for both sides, you know, they they've, they clearly view this as a white man's war, right? Um, both the United States and the Confederacy. Um, and they take very different paths, you know, as the war progresses. And, and for any number of reasons, the United States, you know, begins the process of employing uh, black men into the army uh, in, in 1863. What's interesting is that, you know, for people like Frederick Douglass, you know, they, they were calling for the recruitment of black soldiers from, from day one. And what's interesting is that Douglass himself helped in a way to promote what eventually becomes the black Confederate myth, because, you know, he publishes in his newspaper accounts of black men fighting as soldiers, you know, in the in the Confederate army. And, and you will find these accounts in many northern newspapers, especially in the summer of 1862, uh, during the Peninsula Campaign. And many people who come across these records are very quick to sort of you know, use it as the sufficient evidence that, oh, you know, if they're reporting this in northern newspapers, it must be true that the Confederacy is recruiting these men and use, utilizing them as soldiers, even though Confederate observers are vehemently denying that they are doing anything of the sort. But Douglas would have done this because, you know, he's trying to convince Lincoln that, look, either you employ these men as soldiers or the Confederacy will, right? Make your choice.
1: Yeah, and I find that really interesting. The way that you know Douglas, in particular, is really trying to kind of manipul- manipulate, wow, manipulate, um, the Union side into actually accepting these people, and it's very much you know a very conscious strategy on his part, recognizing that the United States isn't going to just willingly accept these people right off the bat.
0: Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And I think when you look at – when you begin this sort of um, – w- when you look at this from that perspective, I think you can begin to see that, you know, look, this war could have ended as a white man's war. You know, the war ends between before the end of 1862. The Union remains intact. Lincoln and most loyal Northerners get everything they want. And slavery continues. And I think, you know, this sort of reminds us that – um, the push to to make this a, a larger war about emancipation to include black men um, was not inevitable. Right. And, and, you know, it took the Confederacy much longer, of course, to uh, agree to, you know, to begin the recruitment of slaves as soldiers. And, and of course, by the end of, by the time they did so, the war is practically over. Um, but it, it, I think it is an important, you do learn quite a bit, you know, sort of looking at it from this perspective.
1: Moving past the war itself in terms of what's going on then, um, your book is really focused on, you know, the lost cause myth itself. And so for listeners who just may not be familiar with all the tenets of the lost cause, could you kind of briefly explain, you know, what it what it is and kind of what goes into it and, and why it. Came about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the Lost Cause comes out of the pain of defeat for defeated Confederates, and I think it—you it, know—this narrative that they uh, sort of coalesce around. I mean, there's no playbook for the Lost Cause, but there are a couple sort of narrative strands that that stand out. You know, they would have emphasized this as a way to move forward during Reconstruction, uh, during military occupation, and right through the Jim Crow era. And you know, in contrast with what they were saying in 1861, that in fact they are fighting to protect slavery, defend white supremacy. After the war, of course, um, you know, they switched to this sort of idea that this was a, simply a constitutional dispute. They were fighting to protect states' rights. Um, you know, they they highlight their brave generals. They may have been defeated on the battlefield, uh, but generals like Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and others remained uh, morally upright Christian warriors. But probably the most important sort of uh, Threat of the lost cause is this notion of the loyal slave, right? That that their slaves, um, their slaves remain loyal to them. Uh, both on the plantation before the war and especially during the war. So, you know, the kinds of stories that I tell about slaves, camp slaves running off, um, you know, sort of pushing for increased privileges, causing other kinds of problems, uh, those stories, of course, disappear um, within the lost cause framework. And I think this narrative, you know, continues you know, for decades to come and, and through the 20th century, because it allows Southerners to sort of save face, right? It allows the, what former uh, Confederates to to defend what so many had died for. I mean, it's really important, I, I think, to understand the extent to which, you know, death and destruction is, is sort of functions as a cloud over all of this, right? Or, or, or helps to uh, enhance it. Uh, but that loyal slave narrative and the camp slave narrative Uh, is absolutely central to uh, white Southerners being able to begin to pick up the pieces.
1: Yeah, I found it interesting how, you know, the camp slave is is really from the inception of this kind of narrative central to it, because really that's the, as you just said, the kind of starting point for the loyal slave narrative. You know, you could go to the plantation, for for example, and say, you know, okay, my slave people there are still, you know, not running away and everything like that you know we know they do but the camp slave you know you have some photographs as you've as you show in your book, and they really try and forefront these people who were you know saving their slaveholder during a battle or something like that. That's right.
0: Yeah. It, it also it helps. I think you you, were, you sort of alluded to this that it helps to link the home front with with the battlefield. So you have stories of uh, enslaved people uh, protecting property, say you know in the along the path of Sherman's march through Georgia in eighteen sixty four, and then you have that link with what you know of the loyalty of the camp slave rescuing you know his master from the battlefield and um and uh, escorting him home for example right
1: and when we talk about the creation of this myth and particularly you know the loyal slave aspect of it how do black leaders at the time respond to this because you point out that there's not like a completely you know Universal response to this myth
0: no there isn't I mean um, I mean I guess one of the better examples uh, and you know I, I briefly reference him in the book is Booker T. Washington, who you know at times will sort of allude to the loyalty of of um, of enslaved people uh, during the war as a way to um, I guess for a lack of a better way of putting it, get what he wants, you know, at the present moment, either, you know, in terms of fundraising for Tuskegee Institute, uh, you know, he wants to paint a picture of peaceful race relations during the war and even after the war. And I think the camp slave uh, specifically, or the sort of loyal slave narrative more generally helps him to sort of um, alleviate the concerns of of white Southerners uh, during the post-war period that, that, you know the the kinds of moves that African Americans want to make, both you know in, in areas of education, um, et cetera, don't constitute a a threat to the you know to the white hierarchy, to the racial status quo. Um, I don't talk too much about African American leaders. You know, I, I I thought what was more interesting, or, or just as interesting, uh, is the extent to which these former camp slaves, you know, attend or take part and reinforce lost cause ceremonies like you know monument dedications and and especially veterans reunions.
1: I found it interesting. You know, like like you said, you don't spend a huge amount of time talking about this, but I it is it complements your study about like as you said centering you know how former camp slaves play into this and so kind of picking up on that one of the things that you just mentioned was reunions and confederate reunions and so how do they play a part in you know sustaining and creating the lost cause narrative and then how do former camp slaves become crucial to that aspect of it
0: well they're i mean they're very visible at these events at you know at monument dedications and especially veterans reunions and I think they are uh the more I sort of looked into it um you know the, the uh, sort of it, it just sort of highlighted for me their, their importance because you have these, you know, for, first of all, I think, you know, remember these reunions attract tens of thousands of people. They last for three or four days. They, the news coverage is, is you know, is, is very extensive, especially for the national uh, reunions of, of the UCV. And I think having these uh, former camp slaves present you know it it's just a, a powerful reminder, not not so much for the the generation that fought through the war, the veterans themselves and others, but for that next generation, that younger generation that did not experience the war, um, to be able to interact with these men. Right. I think would have been just a a very powerful reminder, you know, of that lost cause narrative, especially and I I mentioned this before, especially at a time when, when you begin to sort of see, you know, increased trouble on the race relations front. Right. As Jim Crow begins to solidify and, you know they play they play a very important role, some of these men um Steve Eberhardt Perry is probably the best example from Georgia you know he attended um i mean it, over ten reunions at least, and he seemed to understand the role he was playing right he He seems to be one of the few that, that played it up. Uh, and I suspect, you know, he got something out of it. Um, he may have, uh, you know, been attempting to endear himself to, uh, the Confederate veterans back in his home community. There may have been a monetary reason behind it. Um, but he, he played a role. I mean, certainly these former camp slaves understand why they are present. Um, but they are, they are the most powerful reminder of, um, of that kind of loyal slave narrative that, um, you know, but for the, the presence of the Yankee army would have been maintained, um, you know, in the South
1: yeah I mean I found the discussion of reunions very interesting partly because as you started off when describing them that they are so huge at the time you know today I think a lot of people are used to something like you you know you go up to Gettysburg or something and it's kind of like a you know a half day affair or something like that and you're really pointing out that these are huge events that might kind of be like the event for a town or something um, for the year and so it's really something that is supposed to like stay in the memory of people
0: yeah i I would add one more point there um which i think is important i I think their presence also constituted or, or represented it was a reminder uh to african americans of what kind of behavior was expected in a jim crow um you know society right in other words um look look to these people your elders who were loyal during the war and remained deferential to white authority. They still know their place. Even even after slavery, even after being freed, they still understand their place uh, within this new racial status quo. And so I think that their presence sent messages both to the white and and the black communities.
1: Yeah. And I I find that interesting, too, when talking about uh, monuments, as you mentioned as well, because, you know, these former camp slaves are not only coming to Confederate reenactments and reunions, but they're also coming to monument dedications, which, you know, today is a very uh, contested issue. But we also know just from Looking at timelines, you know, the first kind of wave of monuments comes up, you know, in the 1920s around that time when race relations are so fraught and they are trying to, as you just said right now, kind of send the message.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know. It is obviously a contentious debate. I, I think one thing that's often lost in this monument debate is the extent to which the monuments that go up during that period, roughly between 1890 and 1930, um, they are not—they are not just just an attempt to uh, to sort of highlight the bravery, the lost cause of of Confederates and the cause itself. Uh, they actively distort the the role of. African Americans during the war, and the best example is, of course, the Confederate Monument in Arlington National Cemetery, that was organized by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, dedicated in 1914 with the help of President Woodrow Wilson, and it's a very complex memorial, um, you know, that surrounds roughly three, is at the center of roughly 360 Confederate dead, but of course the um, the sort of small relief uh, reliefs around the uh, the base of the monument. one of them includes uh, the image of the loyal mammy, you know, taking a child from a Confederate officer about to go off to war. The more uh, problematic one, or just as problematic, is what appears to be a uniformed Black man marching off to war. And today, of course, no surprise, that monument is often referenced as evidence of Black Confederate soldiers. But, But if you just look at the, you know, the historical documents published by the UDC itself, uh, that individual, of course, symbolized the, uh, the loyal camp slave. Um, so, you know, that, that also sort of helps to make or reinforce the, you know, one of the central points of, of the book, which is that, you know, right through the beginning, uh, through much of the 20th century, um, you know, within the lost cause itself, uh, you know, these men were always remembered as loyal camp slaves or loyal slaves, not as loyal black Confederate soldiers, right? They are very consistent about that.
1: And one of the things you just brought up, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, really kind of drives home uh, one of the points that I really appreciate in your book, which is that the creation and kind of maintenance of this myth takes a lot of work. Um, and, you know, the United Daughters of the Confederacy are kind of sort of the poster child of how much work it takes to do this because they're kind of all over the place trying to make sure that this myth kind of becomes accepted and mainstream in society.
0: Oh, absolutely. I I mean, the monuments, of course, are just part of their work, right? And as Karen Cox has demonstrated, I mean, her book Dixie's Daughters is really a must-read on this on this subject. Uh, they're pro- probably their most important work is the regulation of of textbooks that young kids are learning at this time. And they understood that you know who ri- who wins the writing war uh, ultimately wins the battle for memory itself. And you know, I think it's pretty clear um, they did a really good job. Um, they they understood what was at stake for the the next generations, and uh, and they they did what they did.
1: And kind of speaking about, you know, this early 20th century, you know, the place of slavery and everything like that to this memory in the early 20th century, um, one of the things that you talk about, and I find it very interesting because it was something that I wasn't actually aware of beforehand, was pensions for former uh, camp slaves. And so can you explain why ex-Confederates and Southerners in general, as you point out, are actually pretty much in favor of do, of giving pensions to ex-slaves.
0: Yeah, isn't that interesting? I mean, I, I found it fascinating as well. And um, I, I devoted an entire chapter to it because it's, again, one of those subjects that comes up today. Um, you know, people find these documents and uh, apparently, without even reading them, and and believe that what we're looking at are pensions for former black Confederate soldiers. Again, the story is much more much more interesting. It's the veterans themselves, former Confederates. Um, in the immediate post-war period, who actually are the first to, you know, call for these pensions? And I think, you know, and, and this I think some people might have trouble with. I, I think it, to a certain extent, it reflects the fact that at least they believe they had established, you know, sort of a genuine um, rapport, right, a bond with um, with these men during the war. And I, I actually don't. Doubt that, you know, that they believe that. Um, They had suffered through some of the same privations uh, during the war lack of food, weather, disease. Um, So the veterans themselves were some of the first to to really push for it. Mississippi attempts to, uh, well, Mississippi is the first state to to institute pensions for former camp slaves in the 1870s, but it's not until the 1920s that four other former Confederate states, um, you know, passed legislation. Um, As far as I can tell, um, again, these pensions would have had a a kind of a a symbolic importance. Um, Remember, this is right after World War I, black men are coming back with their uniforms, um, you know, and rifles, you know, they're obviously seen as a threat um, uh, from the perspective of many white Southerners. So again, offering pensions to men who are seen as Again, knowing their place in society, accepting the the racial status quo, uh, and acknowledging at the same time that perhaps they do deserve some kind of financial aid uh, at their late stage in life, uh, again would have constituted a really powerful message and, and reinforce uh, the lost cause. I, I really think it's important to remember that the numbers are very are very low in terms of who qualified, who was still alive, who could take advantage of these of these pensions. Um, and you know and so you know you again only four states um you know passed this legislation um but um they also provided an i guess one last opportunity for uh, these elderly men to try to sneak in their own um narrative of the war i think some of these men probably f- remembered fondly their time you know in the army and i again i we have to sort of always keep this within the context of the master-slave uh, relationship. But of course, for many of them, it was a great adventure. And and I think some of them, you know, took advantage of the opportunity to share their own perhaps preferred narrative of their experience, even as they reinforced the expectations of the application, which of course are right out of the lost cause.
1: And I mean, there's so much there that is interesting um, and just, you know, really thought provoking in terms of, you know, for one, you know, as you said, you know, these are this is a time where you have uh, black soldiers, veterans who are just coming back from World War One and, you know, kind of going off of the fears of recruiting black men during the Civil War, you know. Having seen that just scares the crap out of a lot of people. And then what you have, not even just in the South, but even in the North, and what you have happen is, you know, the summer of 1919.
0: That's right. I mean, talk about one of the more racially contentious periods in American history and um, you know look I, I'm the first person to admit that it's, that it's very difficult to sort of pinpoint right or, or make a direct connection between uh, the legislation itself and you know uh, you know the, the broader racial climate um, but it is worth I think just you know at least what I try to do it's, it's at least worth placing them together um, to, to, to try to begin to piece at least or provide some context right some history Historical context. Um, part of the problem with some of these states is the legislative record itself um, just isn't all there. So, especially in the case of Mississippi, uh, which, as I mentioned, was you know passed the legislation what I think in 1878. Um, there's just very little in terms of the historical record to go to go on in terms of what they were doing, what they were thinking inside the state legislature.
1: And then also, you know, one of the things that you just mentioned was the way in which former camp slaves used the pensions and the pension applications um, to both, you know, kind of play the role that they might need to play, but also to somewhat resist that role. And I think one of the more interesting stories of that is Silas himself, who is on the cover of your book and how he um is kind of resisting the role of that is being kind of expected of him a little bit.
0: Yeah. You know, he lives, he lives a long life. Um, he had, you know, because he lived in Mississippi, he had an opportunity to apply, you know, earlier, but he didn't. And it's difficult to know why he didn't. Um, one possibility is that he just didn't need the money. He, he, you know, what we know about him. And I learned this um, from working closely, closely with his great granddaughter over the last few years. Um, but what she uncovered is that, in fact, he was quite successful as a carpenter, um, you know, in West Point, Mississippi. He had helped to construct some of the city buildings. Um, he was involved in the local church. His children uh, went on to be successful as teachers. Um, and he may simply not have needed the money. He may not have wanted to apply for, uh, for the pension, um, for any number of reasons. But uh, but in the end, he did, and he filled out a pension that, if you look at it, is very clearly marked for a former camp slave. And you know, he answered the questions in terms of who he served, how long. Um, but for Silas and others. You know, they do sort of hint at uh, not so much Silas, but I think in a couple other cases, they do talk about sort of, you know, braving the battlefield, hearing the guns, um, you know, being close to the scene of, of, of the fight. And I think, you know, for some of them, it must have been, again, they must have relived uh, that experience as they were applying, um, you know, for what limited funds were available from from their respective states.
1: I just find it so interesting the idea of, you know, giving these pensions and everything like that and you know, kind of moving on from that in terms of, you know, another kind of manifestation of, you know, the lost cause and the, the loyal slave narrative and everything like that. And we've kind of been talking about it um, this whole time. But you also talk about in the last part of your book, you know, the kind of explicit black soldier, black confederate, you know, kind of coming on the scene in the lost cause narrative and when that kind of comes about in the United States history. And so what is that about?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, that's I, that's probably the most important transition, you know, in the book, right? Um, to sort of point out that that this obsession that we have with the idea of a black Confederate soldier is it would have been just uh, completely foreign to the generation that fought the war and generations to to come after, right? And so. What I tried to do in those last two tra- chapters was to sort of, you know, help the reader understand the, you know, the climate of the 1970s. The fact that within our broader memory of the Civil War, things are beginning to change, coming out of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, that emancipation, the history of slavery, the service of United States colored troops is beginning to um, filter down from the sort of more uh, the academic, uh, the scholarship that's being produced down to historic sites, other historic institutions. Popular culture more generally, and it's really after the success of the television miniseries *Roots* uh, that I found that you begin to see this sort of chatter within the you know the Confederate heritage community, specifically within the Sons of Confederate Veterans. They start to worry about this sort of increased you know focus, this emancipationist to use David Blight's term terminology here, this emancipationist narrative of the war that's beginning to take hold, and they're worried that. It's going to make it more difficult for them to defend their Confederate ancestors. And they start to sort of talk about the need to find their own loyal black uh, Confederates, or, you know, they don't often refer to soldiers. They eventually will. But you can see what they're doing. They're trying to sort of balance the scales. And through the 1980s, you begin to see more being produced within Confederate Veteran Magazine, uh, a small number of sort of vanity press books that are produced by SCV members. Um, they respond again, they're very disturbed by the focus of Ken Burns' Civil War series in 1990, the success of the Hollywood movie Glory in 89, but it's really the advent of the internet that gives this, uh, legs, right? Without the internet, the black Confederate narrative really doesn't have any chance at all to take hold. And of course, the reasons are obvious that, you know, uh, anyone can upload information on a website. And if you're dealing with a population that's um, that is not trained to properly search and assess online information, um, you end up in these kinds of, um, you know, these kinds of nightmare scenarios or or myth making, if you will. Um, and that's essentially what has happened. But again, I think it's really important to, to remember that uh, this is a, a very new um, narrative development, this sort of black confeder- Confederate story.
1: Yeah, for me, it's it's really interesting to kind of see you know the same way that um, as we mentioned earlier, uh, monuments kind of come up at a very specific time in American history, and then they kind of reemerge also in this period that you were just talking about that the Confederate myth um, making also changes and takes new forms during these times of kind of contestation um, between you know history and you know. Kind of the accepted or created myth of some,
0: yeah. It gives you a nice sense of of the extent to which the Lost Cause itself is flexible, right? I mean, for me, the the Black Conner- Confederate narrative is is sort of a is a version, right? It's an extension of that uh, loyal slave narrative that goes back, um, well, even before the war itself. But yeah, it's and it's you know, it tells us that you know how we consume, you know, interpret the past tells us quite a bit about. Uh, our own current, you know, sort of political, cultural climate, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I know one thing that I kind of appreciated when reading this was, you know, when discussing, as you just said, that, you know, the internet really gives this legs and really allows it to take on, you know, a new form that arguably kind of like is not even arguably, but is able to reach way more people yeah. is, you know, as a native Virginian and your discussion of uh, briefly the, I think it was the fourth grade textbook yeah. where like yeah. the author just like looks on a website and says, well, this must be fact.
0: That's right. That's right. She apparently uh, stumbled upon a. Sons of Confederate Veterans website. Um, Interesting sort of update to that story. She recently completed a master's degree in history. So clearly she understood the mistakes she made. And, uh, you know, I I applaud her for for trying to educate herself.
1: That's hopefully what people can do um, with this book in particular. um, And any study that like uh, out there that might complement it, you know you've named a few, um and so I guess before we let you go, uh could you tell us you know we have this great book, and I encourage everyone to to go out and buy it and read it, and if things kind of go as planned, this may be going up on the day that the book comes out. Once again, Kevin M. Levin, uh, Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. So we have this great book in front of us. What might we expect from you in the future?
0: So I'm working on a couple things. Um, uh, I'm working on a book about the, the history of Confederate monuments. Um, that's both a history and a... A primary source reader. I'm co-authoring that. Um, and I'm sort of playing around with the idea of writing a book about um, the battle at Battery Wagner in July of 1863 as a kind of window into the war in 1863 and the beginning of the history of Reconstruction. So what does Reconstruction look like uh, from the perspective of the summer of 1863 through the participants of uh, of this particular battle and how people responded to it?
1: Well, I'm sure either one of those works will be good. And I'm sure when they eventually come out, we'll probably have you right back on the program to talk about those as well. Sounds great. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today and speaking about your book. It is my pleasure.
0: Thanks so much, Derek.